Our scripture reading today is found in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18a. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, I have some recommendations to see if I can stop my popping here. So, <laughs> let's see. Today we're going to continue with our sermon on the book of Philippians. This is the third and hopefully a series of ten that we're going to do over the summer. And we've come to this part of the letter where Paul is giving us an update to the church in Philippi. And his update runs basically from verses 12 through 26. Um, but in verses 12 through 18, Paul addresses the circumstances that have served to advance the gospel where he is, his location, most likely in Rome. While verses 18b through 26 is basically Paul's thoughts around his impending death and or release from imprisonment. Today, though, we're going to focus on the first part of Paul's report, while next Sunday we'll touch on the second part of his report. The Bible makes it clear for us that while we are living in this world, we will have difficulty, we will encounter suffering, and trials are simply a part of living. They come in a variety of forms, from unexpected crises like cancer, to adversity, or just the daily pressure of life. It's normal to lament our circumstances when we're, when we're in the midst of suffering. We can't always control the pain that comes into our lives, but we can choose how we respond to it. Do we blame God, or do we pursue God when the unexpected comes our way? Do we spend most of our time asking the questions of why is this happening to me? Or do we spend time learning to live in and through these hardships by growing in our trust and belief that God is good, wise, faithful, and in control of our pain and our suffering? Sometimes we operate under the impression, or at least the assumption, that these difficulties the unanswered questions we face are only new to us. But brothers and sisters, church, here's the thing. They're not new to us. The church has been struggling with these same questions from day one. And the wonderful aspect of that, if there's anything good that can come out of suffering, is that we can lean in upon our brothers and sisters who have gone through it before us, and we can learn from them. 
We can learn from one another even how to suffer together well in Christ. Some of the most amazing responses to suffering can be found in hymns. And I know that a lot of us don't like hymns, but there is a lot in hymns to enjoy and to learn from. And in particular, some of these hymns that were written by various men and women over the years uh, really show up, give an expression of someone struggling with the suffering and pain that they were enduring, and they put it in both in song and in verse. One such person was Anne Steele, who was a poet and a hymnist who wrote mostly in the 19th century, uh, and she wrote over 150 hymns. Anne struggled her entire life with sickness and terrible pain brought on from her various ailments. She lived to be a ripe, the ripe age of 80 or 81, I think, but the last seven, eight years of her life, she was um, bedridden. She couldn't leave her room, and, and yet her mind was still intact and well-working. She lived a life of suffering from day one. Uh, it's, she's an interesting story to read if you ever have time. One hymn that truly captures her struggle is called, My God, My Father, Blissful Name, which Indelible Grace redid a number of years back. It reads like this, and I'm not going to sing it because I don't want to harm anyone's ears here, um, but it's really a verse, it's really a poem. And so just listen to her words here. And this is only part of the song. This only can my fears control and bid my sorrows fly. What harm can ever reach my soul beneath my Father's eye? Whatever thy providence denies, I calmly would resign. For thou art just and good and wise, O bend my will to thine. I love these words. You know, they bring joy to my heart. But if we're honest, it's truly difficult to have the perspective of Anne, to have the perspective she had. When she wrote, what harm can ever reach my soul, I wondered if her body was racked in pain. Or when she said that whatever thy providence denies, was she reminded, was she reminding herself that her body would never be pain-free? Her words in the hymn are comforting and helpful and hopeful, and we can all agree that in the midst of trial, we need to know that God is good, wise, and in control. These lines reflect the struggle we face when confronted with suffering. And it's not just our struggle, it was also the same struggle the Apostle Paul was enduring when he wrote this letter. He had to endure suffering just like you and me. And this letter from him does not tell us everything that he endured, nor does it tell us his inner struggle of being in chains. Though we do not see the depth of his struggle, we know that his situation bore heavily upon him, because how could it not? He was in prison. We're not exactly sure how long Paul had been in prison, but if this was the imprisonment that's mentioned in Acts 21, his confinement started in Jerusalem, where he waited two years in a jail cell to have his case heard before his, the authorities. And they kept postponing it, postponing it, and postponing it, until eventually Paul, sort of out of exasperation, appeals his case to Caesar, which he had a right to do as a Roman citizen. But that entailed him having to go from Jerusalem via boat to Rome. And on his way to Rome, while in chains, Paul almost died at sea in a storm, was ship, eventually shipwrecked on Malta, the island of Malta. On the island of Malta was bitten by a poisonous snake before arriving to Rome in chains under house arrest. 
Two years, two years in prison, at least in Jerusalem. All kinds of things happened to him over the next six months on his way to Rome to arrive in Rome again to sit in jail, to sit in a prison, waiting for the outcome of his trial. You know, he'd probably been a prisoner for like three years, maybe even longer. And yet Paul's response to the Philippians didn't dwell or even lament his circumstances. Now, that's enough with the setting right now. I want to today look at three things or three ideas that Paul brings out in this text. First, I want us to see that he's going to talk about gospel progress, gospel boldness, and gospel joy. The church in Philippi was still unaware of much of what had, ha- what had happened or transpired with Paul, and they were deeply concerned for him and his work. They hadn't heard from him in months, maybe upwards of six months. That's about how long it would take to go from Rome to Philippi, three to six months. And they wanted to know what in the world was going on with him, how he was doing. So Paul began this section with, I want you to know what has happened to me. But then notice, he never goes into any detail of what had transpired with him. He didn't give any information about his struggles, his situation, or even his health. He didn't complain or gripe about his circumstances, even against those who caused him pain. Though he provides none of the information that we might like to know regarding this imprisonment, he did want the church to know one thing, one very important thing, that unexpected blessing had come from his chains. What had happened to him had served to advance the cause of Christ. I believe Paul was as surprised by this truth as much as the church in Philippi was. No one could have expected what Paul was reporting. He was in prison. He was under guard. Wasn't the gospel impeded? Wasn't his ministry dead? Locked in? He couldn't do it? Of course not. The gospel was never chained at all. 2 Corinthians reminds us the gospel can't be chained. Paul's ministry wasn't dead. Rather, it had continued from his prison cell. Against all expectations, the gospel had made inroads. And we see from this text that it had made progress in two areas. First, the gospel moved into the palace guard, we're told. Now, the NIV says that the palace guards, but the Greek word is praetorium, um, which means it was a praetorian guard, which were these sort of these elite, 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 elite guards of the emperor. They were like the Roman seals of the Roman, of the, uh, Roman Empire. And there were about 9,000 of them, and they worked directly with the emperor, providing his protection and any way he wanted to use them. And these were the guards that were protecting or that were chained 24-7 to Paul while he was in Rome. Paul's report is amazing and, a, and slightly funny to me, if you, if you really grasp what's going on here. For years, he had been in prison with a guard attached to him. Every six hours, these guards of the emperor were switched out. Basically, Paul had a captive audience, and apparently he didn't allow the opportunity to slip away. The closest thing that comes to my mind of Paul and his guards is being on the subway today, on the subway car today, when someone comes in and begins preaching. Those guards felt just like you and me felt, feel when that happens, right? Whether we want to be there or not, we're there and we got to watch it unfold. And that's what was going on with Paul and his guards. Whether the guards wanted to hear the gospel message of Jesus or not, they really didn't have a choice. They were with Paul constantly. And they were not, and this is important, they were not just hearing the message of the gospel. 
they were seeing firsthand Paul's devotion to Christ. They were seeing his devotion to Christ through his prayer life, through his worship, and through his meeting with other Christians to encourage them. They saw him daily live out the truth of what he was preaching, teaching, and sharing. These same guards who were impacted by Paul's teaching took his message to others in their ranks so that the message of Jesus had become known throughout the imperial guard. Now, not only does Paul's message impact the guards, we're told, he says that it had become known to everyone. Now, we're not sure exactly what, who everyone is. The Greek, in, the Greek itself isn't very clear who Paul is referring to, but at a minimum, it included the household of Caesar. And we know this because when Paul closed this letter, he sent greetings from Caesar's household. How'd that happen? Ah, I'm not really sure, so this is conjecture, but it's not hard to guess. Paul was interacting under house arrest with, rest with all kinds of people. He most likely intermingled with food vendors, merchants, and servants to provide for his day-to-day -day needs. Because remember, under house arrest, Paul was responsible to pay the rent on his prison cell. He was responsible to buy his own clothing, responsible to buy his lending, responsible to get his own food, which is why, if you remember from last week, which is why he had asked the church in Philippi to help him with these, some financial needs. Because again, he's having to provide for everything for him. But that allowed him, we think, that allowed him to intermingle with all kinds of people. He wasn't stuck in a, a cell away from everyone else. He was able to have contact with people who could come and visit him in this house, in this cell. Despite Paul's chains and, a, and completely unexpected, the gospel had advanced so that he could report to everyone that everyone had become aware of why he was in chains. He wasn't in prison because he was a criminal or a political prisoner or even a rebel. He was guilty of nothing more and nothing less than being a Christian, which had led to his imprisonment and his suffering. Warren we Wearsby uh, was a Bible teacher. He passed away many years back, but he said this uh, regarding Paul in this section of Scripture. The same God who used Moses' staff and, who, and used Gideon's pitchers and used David's sling, all weapons, also used Paul's chains. Instead of Paul's chains impeding the advance of the gospel, the message of Jesus had progressed in the unlikeliest of places. His chains had opened doors to him to reach the highest levels of government in Jerusalem and in Rome. The report from Paul gives us a different perspective on suffering and on trials. But before I go to that, I want to say a few things about suffering, the suffering of Paul in general. This passage doesn't answer any of the why questions we might ask around suffering, nor does it solve the mysterious paradoxes involved in suffering. Paul is not telling us to pretend that things aren't as bad as they might be for us. And he's not expecting us to walk around with smiles plastered on our faces in the midst of suffering. Paul's suffering was real. It was difficult. And he acknowledged that his imprisonment was an affliction made worse by his opponents. Suffering is real and nothing Paul says here says otherwise. And we need to remember that when we face trials, we don't have to pretend that things aren't difficult. We don't have to pretend that everything is good. How are you doing today? Oh, it's great. It's great. Anything going on in your life? No, it's all good. It's all good. I, I understand. We do that 
as a way, just a general way of talking, but brothers and sisters, we have to learn to be able to share what's going on with our hearts, because how can someone pray for you? How can someone walk through you in your suffering if they don't know what's going on in your life and in your heart? We don't have to pretend to cover up our struggles or even our emotions. Now let's look back at Paul's perspective regarding his present circumstances. Paul says his situation Paul saw his situation in light of his calling. And I think that's important for us to remember here. He saw his situation in light of his calling. And his calling was to be an apostle. And he perceived his chains and his imprisonment and his suffering as a new opportunity to preach the gospel. It's a new opportunity, but it was one that that he would not have chosen. He he wants out of this situation. And as you read through the rest of Philippians, you get this, you'll get this picture that Paul isn't happy to be in chains. He's not excited that he's been sitting in prison for three plus years. He absolutely wants out of this situation that God has placed him in. But there's no doubt that he had a new perspective and saw God using the progress of the gospel and his suffering for his good and God's glory. Like Paul, we also will face suffering and hardship. We normally wouldn't choose to be unemployed or underemployed. We wouldn't choose cancer or some other debilitating illness. We wouldn't choose hard, broken, painful relationships or difficult marriages. Like Paul, we can reframe our trials. We need not be surprised by hard circumstances that come our way. All our struggles, all of life, falls under the sovereign control of our Heavenly Father who loves us with an eternal love. We can endure suffering because we're loved deeply and fully by Christ and in Christ. We can have faith that when trials come, God will be right there with us to help make our trials count for his glory and our good. And when we face the hard circumstances of life, we should run not to questions of why, but rather to how can I serve the further progress of the gospel, even in this circumstance, even in this hardship, even in this trial? How can God use me to make his gospel known? How can God use me through this suffering to make me more and more like Jesus? The gospel had made progress among unbelievers despite Paul being in jail. And just as importantly, Paul's imprisonment also had impacted believers in Rome. In verses 14 and 18, Paul turns his attention to these believers who are now more confident and more bold to preach the gospel without fear because of Paul's chains. There are basically two camps of believers in this this verses 14 through 18. Paul said some believers preach the gospel out of goodwill, while others preach the gospel out of envy and rivalry. One does it out of love, while the other does it out of selfish ambition. Paul's chains had both a positive and a negative impact on the house churches in Rome. His chains brought unity and division. And these same kinds of divisions were also seen in the Corinthian church. Now, when Paul wrote his book to the the Roman church, when you get to chapter 14 and 15, you can see, you get hints of some of the division that were already present in this church, the churches in Rome. The book of Romans was written probably four or five years before Philippians. So already, Paul, there was this tension in that church. But 1 Corinthians shows us a different kind of tension that I think may be more apt to what Paul is speaking about here. In 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1, Paul writes this, 
I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Paulos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul, was Paul crucified for you? Just like the Corinthian church, there seems to have been pro-Paul groups and anti-Paul groups in the city of Rome. Paul's chains had genuinely strengthened many believers in the task of evangelism, the majority being motivated by love and goodwill. But others saw the opportunity for self-advancement and seemed to have taken delight in rubbing salt in Paul's wounds. As bad as all this was, Paul never called these troublemakers unbelievers, but he did call them brothers. They were not against Christ, but they were definitely against Paul. Both groups of believers were preaching their true gospel, and this is why Paul can call them brothers. They weren't preaching a different gospel. They were preaching the same thing Paul was preaching, but with probably with wrongful motives. The first group of believers Paul commends because their motives matched the gospel he preached. They preached out of love and goodwill. They sought to imitate Paul's life and his actions. The second group of believers preached the gospel from selfish ambition and envy. And please note, Paul is not commending their motives or behavior. Nowhere does Paul say, I'm so glad these men and women are stirring up trouble for me through their selfish ambition, through their envy. Rather, their lives did not match the gospel they proclaimed. In essence, today, we would say these men were being hypocrites. These women were being hypocrites and that what they were preaching wasn't matching what was going on in their lives. Both groups saw and heard Paul proclaim the gospel clearly and forcefully for years. And this had lit a fire under these believers so that they no longer could keep silent and Paul commended them for their boldness. Look, suffering for the cause of Christ has often led to, to greater gospel boldness, to greater gospel witnessing. This is just a fact of church history. You can go to any period in church history and find multiple hundreds of accounts of men and women who suffered terribly for their faith because they were proclaiming Christ, because they were Christians, and they were out openly evangelizing and speaking of the love and mercy of Jesus Christ to their neighbors. One famous example of this happened in the mid-1950s when five young men and eventually their wives decided to work among an unreached people group in South America called the Aku Indians, or today they're now known as the Horani indigenous people who lived in the Ecuadorian Amazon jungle. This tribe was known to be very antagonistic to outsiders, whether they were Westerners or local, and they were a very violent tribe. They often killed and fought among each other. Uh, when you look at their history, uh, you know, this guy went angry over this person's wife, so killed his husband or her husband, just all this going on within this tribe constantly. Now, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint were two of the most well-known of these five men who tried to make contact with this tribe. These men made, eventually made contact with this tribe but within two days, within two days, all five of them were speared to death in, the, in a river basin in Ecuador. The story could have ended there, 
but it made headlines in Time Magazine. And for those of you who don't know, Time Magazine back in its day was like one of the top magazines that most Americans would read. But it made the headlines of that magazine in 1956. The death of these five men spurred on the American church into greater evangelistic mission and zeal. And not only that, the, some of these men had gone to Wheaton College. Over the next 10 years, Wheaton College would send out hundreds of men and women into the mission field because these men died for their faith. They died for their faith, and that sort of lit a fire under the church to go, wow, we need to be involved in taking the gospel to the unreached. The amazing aspect of this story, though, is that some years later, the wife, uh, whose name is Elizabeth Elliot, many of you know, um, and daughter of Jim Elliot, and the sister of Nate Saint, returned to work among the Horani people. And God used these men's death and the work of these women to lead almost the entire tribe to Christ. The bottom line is this, is God's ways are not our ways, and his ways are greater than ours. The last thing I want us to see today, see today and to touch on is gospel joy. I love the way Paul wraps up this section of his report. He says, the important thing is, is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul wasn't alarmed with the motives of those preaching because they were preaching truth. The gospel they preached was the same gospel he preached, and Paul knew that the power of the gospel was not dependent on the sincerity of the person preaching, thankfully. So Paul could rejoice, and he did rejoice. Paul could see in his mind's eye the gospel flowing out like little ripples on the pond. First to those Roman soldiers, then to the household of Caesar, on to the churches of Rome, on back to Philippi. And in Paul's mind's eye, where, where did Paul want to go next? Was Spain. He could see this gospel moving out, moving out, and he rejoiced over and repeatedly because he saw God at work through the message of Jesus Christ. Paul's heart swelled with gratitude and joy. And as Christians, we rejoice. We should be rejoicing when the gospel is preached, when the gospel is proclaimed, whether that's a gospel message or whether that's you talking with your neighbor, simply talking about what Jesus is doing in your own life. That's the same message that was going forward. Why did the message spread so quickly throughout the Roman Empire? Most people think because people were simply talking about who Jesus was and what he had done in their life. That's why it spread within 300 years throughout the entire Roman Empire. Look, regardless of what's happening, when we preach the gospel, we should, be, we should rejoice. We should be glad. We should be excited for what's happening. Because the point in this is, the point for us is this. It's not us, that church against us, or that group against us. It's not us and them. It's the, proc the proclamation of Christ that matters. It's the building of the kingdom of Christ in New York City and throughout the world that matters. And we can rejoice when Christ is proclaimed, whether it's us or someone else on the corner over here. We can rejoice. We can rejoice even though it may make us feel uncomfortable when the man or the woman comes onto the train and preaches the gospel. We should rejoice. We may not, that may not be us, but we should rejoice because the gospel is being proclaimed. Because according to Paul, joy is found in Christ in the gospel message transforming our lives. Let's pray. Almighty God, give us, give us such a love for the kingdom, such a burning desire to see Christ exalted. 
that we will approach all our circumstances asking gospel questions. Not how could you let this happen, Lord? Not are you in control, Lord? But Lord God, I know that you love me. I know that you care for me. I know that you gave your son for me. I know that you're working all things together for our good. But Lord, help us to exalt Christ even in this, so that whether we live or die, he is glorified. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.